things, uh, maybe more, I, I, I don't know. Uh, my guess is, actually, as we've been going through this series, uh, it's pressed some of you to think about the words that you use uh, about Jesus or just churchy words in general that you've not quite really thought about. And maybe this is one of those. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Savior? Saving us from what? To what? Right? Well, we usually mean it, as I said, one of two ways. Maybe something like, we go to heaven when we die, uh, is often how it gets said. So, I'm saved and therefore I go to heaven when I die. I, I think this is a pretty shrunken down version of what Christianity is. So, so small, in fact, that uh, it really needs to be uh, broadened and teased out. And, and it needs to be more than that. It has to be more than that. The second way is actually one of the things uh, uh, Cheryl Hammond said this morning in her wonderful uh, children's message, which ties in very closely with what I want to say this morning. Uh, I love when that happens. Uh, And that is that Jesus saves us from our sin. Jesus saves us from our sin. We find this all over the New Testament. Uh, It's kind of just a a common way to think about uh, what Jesus saves us from. Uh, And indeed it's true, right? But there's something really interesting going on uh, that we'll get to a little bit down the road here. But I want to start in the Old Testament and what salvation means in the Old Testament. And this is where you may get a little surprised because it's, it's probably not exactly what you thought it meant, at least, again, in our Old Testament. And so uh, sometimes... For our Old Testament writers, it does have this individualistic component. Hannah, for example, can cry out for salvation because she's barren and she needs God to save her from this plight that she's in. This happens in any number of other places. The psalmist uh, cries out for salvation on a regular basis from whatever plight uh, he's in, right? But usually, when the word salvation or Savior shows up in our Old Testament, it actually takes on a a corporate meaning. Israel as a whole needs to be saved in some fashion. And usually it's from an enemy, whether it's the Philistines, whether it becomes Babylon, whether it's Assyria. I mean, name the enemy, and that's what it usually means. The prototypical example of this actually comes to us from the passage we read this morning, Exodus chapter 15, and I'll go ahead and read it again for us. This is at the very end of the whole Exodus uh, narrative where Moses uh, has ushered uh, Israel out of Egypt, and God has indeed saved them from the Egyptians, and they're about to go wandering in the desert for a while. They don't know what's about to hit them, Uh, but nevertheless, God has marched them through that Red Sea and they find themselves on dry land on the other side, and this is what they say. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. And there's the word. The Lord has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. And in this fashion, Jesus, or God, Yahweh, in the Old Testament, becomes the Savior of Israel, right? He he saves them from their 
corporate plight in Egypt. And then it's just a few chapters later, they march through the desert just a little bit, they get to Sinai, and in Exodus chapter 20, what happens next? Well, this is where we get the Ten Commandments. And Israel and God enter into a covenant relationship in this moment. And it is one of the most significant moments in all of our scriptures. And here we get at the very beginning of it all, these words. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, I saved you, right? This is the God I am. I am the God of salvation. I saved you from your plight. And therefore, here's the rules right? Here's the covenant agreement we're making. And he begins this way, you shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment, right? So what's happening here? Well, what's happening is uh, this is actually a, it's easy to miss because, well, we don't know, uh, most of us in the pews anyway, don't, don't know our, our treaty formulas uh, from 3,000 years ago and what they look like But what we have in the Ten Commandments is something you would find uh, almost directly, like uh, verbatim, like you could put these up next to other treaty formulas that exist in the ancient world, and they look identical. And the treaties are between kings and their vassals, right? The, The people who serve the king. And so what's happening here is God is coming to Israel saying to them, I want to be your king. I want to be your king. And I will save you just like I already have. That's my job. My job is to save you when you get into trouble. And you know now that I can do it. And I want you to be my people. And Israel, in chapter 19 of Exodus, the chapter before, says yes. And then God says, great. Here's how we make the treaty. Here's how we do this. And then he proceeds with what we call the Ten Commandments, right? And so we have the relationship between God and Israel is one of Savior to the saved. And we have a relationship between a king and his people. And so when we get salvation language, honestly, throughout the whole Old Testament, this is just where it starts. It goes on and on and on and on. We're really using king language. And typically, it's God as king and Israel as God's people. Now, sometimes there becomes this intermediary in the middle of it all, and that is the king of Israel himself gets thrown in there. And it's the king's job to make sure that Israel is safe, the king of Israel. But the king of Israel well, is more like a prince of Israel. In fact, God calls him such, the prince of Israel, because God is the real king, and it's really God's job to do this, right? There is this interesting aside to all of this. And it got asked to me, I hadn't even considered it until I was talking to my crew on Wednesday. Uh, and one of them asked about the idea of being saved from your sins in the Old Testament. And so I hunted this down. Does this language even show up in the Old Testament that we are saved from our sins? And the answer is, sort of, I mean, it shows up in a couple spots that I could find. 
Interestingly, both prophetic, Ezekiel 37, and if you know anything about Ezekiel 37, it, it's kind of foreshadowing the resurrection of it all. And it also shows up in Isaiah 64, also prophetic, talking about future stuff. And so, otherwise, though, when we talk about our sin, the language we don't get is salvation language in our Old Testament. We get lots of talk about sin. So, like, if you go through uh, the book of Leviticus or something, where it's all about sin and sin mitigation, right? What do we find? Well, well, we, are find, we, we, we find we are forgiven of our sins, or, and we're, we're cleansed from our sins, and we are, our sins are atoned for, that is, we are at, made at one with God once again. But interestingly, we, just, we don't find that we are saved from our sins. And so here's what I would suggest to you. We've got two realms. We've got our kingly realm and our priestly realm. The, the, these two roles I, I've talked about, the, Jesus plays both of these roles, right? As king and as priest. There's also prophet. We're going to leave that one to the side for right now. And usually when we talk about sin, we're in the priestly realm. And when we're talking about salvation, we're in the kingly realm. And this goes on for a long time, throughout most of the Old Testament. And then one of the things that happens in the New Testament that is pretty remarkable and is frankly understated and often missed is that these two worlds collide together and that the priest and the king happen to be the same person. And that salvation from sin is suddenly, one, possible, and two, we realize just how necessary it is. Before I get to the New Testament part of this, as these worlds sit apart from one another, the priestly realm and uh, the kingly realm, there is a great gift, a grace, that exists in the Old Testament. We don't often think of the Old Testament as filled with grace, but it is. And there's one significant grace, gift, and that is the law, right? The law. And how does the law function in the Old Testament? What does it do? Well, in a way, it's what I've already told you, which is it becomes the covenant between God, the king, and his people. And as long as the people keep that law, they're in good relationship with God. But then there's also the law in its moral sense. And when we break the law, we need a priest at this moment to set us free from those sins. Now you're saying to yourself, why are you bringing all of this up? And take a step back a second and tell you a story. The other day, I was in my yard. My yard is starting to turn green again, thanks to True Green. <laughs> <laughs> And the strangest thing happened. I have my son mow my lawn for me, which is a wonderful thing. Uh, this is tremendous. Uh, I, I don't have to do that anymore. And he does a fabulous job. So I, I go out there, and I look down in the grass, and I see this thing that's growing up. And it's not just a thing. It's like actually a few things growing up that should not be growing in a yard. And I look closely, and it's hostas of all things. 
It's hostas, right? And uh, if you know what a hosta is, it's a, it's a, they grow these nice broad leaves and, uh, and they have bulbs uh, that kind of root down in and they'll just keep popping up, you know, year after year after year, right? It, it, and so I normally like hostas. I just want them in the right place. Uh, I want them in my garden, not in my yard. And so I could every day or week go out there with my lawnmower or my, have my son do it uh, and mow over the hostas and, and cut them out, right? And then they'll just keep growing back up. This is like the law. This is how the law functions. It tells you, you've got hostas in your yard. <laughs> it, it, they shouldn't be there, but you've got them. And here's how to, uh, to cut around them and, and to make sure that they stay, uh, you know, trimmed and whatever. When we get to the New Testament, Jesus says that's not enough. If you really want to take care of your hostas problem, it's not enough to, to just cut them out every now and again. You actually have to get a shovel out. And you have to dig way down deep, like I did just a couple days ago. And you have to dig a big hole in your yard. And you have to get all of those bulbs out. And there were so many, and I don't know where they came from. Actually, I, I think I do know where they came from. Uh, someone planted them in my... No, uh, they, they did not. But I... There were, I would say, 15 of these bulbs. And so I dig down deep, and I, I dig a big hole, and I rip them all out at their roots, right? This was not possible in the Old Testament. The law does not offer you this option. It would say it itself. It doesn't offer you the option of ripping out those, uh, the, the sin problem that you have from the roots. It just tells you how to manage it and mitigate it from time to time. That's what the law does. And so Paul tells us, if anything, the law teaches us, well, it teaches us just how sinful we are, just how many errors we make. And so we come back to the problem. What's wrong with the world, and how do we fix it? And the Old Testament offers some solutions here, right? And it says, what's wrong with the world? Well, clearly, there's a sin problem in the world. The Old Testament recognizes this. And how do we fix it? Well, we mitigate it. We, we, keep, our, we keep the law as much as possible, and we do the right things. And this goes on for centuries and centuries and centuries. But what we find in the New Testament is that there's got to be a deeper solution. There's got to be a way to dig out of your own very self the problem that is rooted in there. Because we might want to ask, what's wrong with the world? But it turns out What's wrong with the world is the same thing that's wrong with me, right? So this gets us to the New Testament. I keep coming back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I find it to be really helpful. I have come back to it time and time again, and it keeps paying off. And it answers all kinds of questions about Jesus' death 
and Jesus' resurrection and the meaning of it all and what happened with it. And so here we have again today, 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 20 through 25. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom, and here comes our king language, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign, and here we have a Christ who is a king reigning. He must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. Now, the astute ones of you might remember where this comes from. Any, any guesses? Well, let me finish. The last enemy to be defeated is death. Right, the last one. That gives us a glimpse as to where we're going with all of this, by the way. This passage, verse 25, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, is a reference to Psalm 110. We used it very recently to talk about Jesus as the Messiah. I'm going to read a little more of Psalm 110 to give you the context of what's happening in this passage, because it's a really interesting one. It's a messianic passage, as I've already said. This is one that Jews in the first century would have pointed to and said, this is what we expect from our Messiah. When the Messiah finally comes, when the king finally comes, this is what we expect our king to do. And you shouldn't be surprised when part of what the expectation is to kick out the enemies and to take care of Israel's enemies, because that is the king's job, right? The king is supposed to do this. We established this already. For uh, the king to save Israel means to save them from their enemies. Again, whether the Philistines or the Babylonians or the Egyptians or the Assyrians or the Persians or whoever might be, the Romans. This is what they're expecting. And we find it right here. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my, David's, Lord, the Messiah, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is what Paul is referencing in 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to put your enemies under your feet. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. That sounds great. We have a king ruling in the midst of his enemies. Skipping down to verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter the kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. If we were to ask the question, what's wrong with the world? And we were to look at this passage, we could very easily say, well, what's wrong with the world is my enemies, right? My enemies are what's wrong with the world. And those enemies 
according to many uh, folks in our Old Testament, would be all of those nations that I mentioned. Right? All of those people, they're really messing things up. That's not really how Jesus uh, takes care of this. That's not where he goes with this at all. And that's not how Paul uh, runs with this either, is it? I would suggest to you, actually, something uh, quite to the contrary. In Romans 12, 20, Paul tells us this. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, you should feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Wait, we're supposed to take care of our enemies, is is what Paul says. I I thought we were supposed to put our enemies under our feet. No? Or, Romans chapter 5, verse 10, For if while we were enemies, we were the enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. Well, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Well, this is a shocker. It turns out that we might be part of the problem. We might be part of the enemies, right? But I actually think that Paul has a bigger enemy in mind yet. An enemy that, needs, uh, that we need to be saved from in a way that the Old Testament wasn't quite accounting for. And it goes like this. We actually spent a lot of time on this passage. It's from Ephesians chapter 6. I'm sure you all remember, starting in verse 10. We read this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Who is our enemy is the question, and the answer starts with the devil, but it keeps going. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Our enemy, in other words, it's not other people. It's not other nations, even. Our enemy is not flesh and blood, but against the rulers. Well, this is interesting. Here we get the ruler language again. Against the authorities. Same kind of thing. Against, now here we have it, cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly place. And this is what I would submit to you. That when Paul talks about our enemies, he is saying to us that your enemy is the great enemy that has existed since Adam and Eve fell in the garden at the beginning. Whether that be Satan or Paul likes to talk about the enemies of sin, almost personified, and death, he said that in 1 Corinthians 15, if you recall, that the last enemy to be, to, to be defeated is death itself. These, these are our enemies. And it is this that needs to be rooted out. And it's out there in the world, yes. And the world has all kinds of problems in it, yes. But Jesus would remind us that it starts right here, right? And, and that the enemy 
the enemy is the enemy from within. That the sin and death that has reigned within us is exactly what we need salvation from. Sin and death have a tendency... No, I take that back. Sin and death indeed do rule in the hearts of humanity. Sin and death have taken over humanity and the world. So what is wrong with the world? Sin and death. Not just out there, in here, right? How do I fix it becomes the question. Well, how do I fix that? And that is where the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ makes all the difference in the world. With the death of Jesus Christ, we have a solution to the world's greatest problem that has ever existed, sin and death. And with the resurrection, Paul tells us we have the first fruits of what we can expect, which is abundant life. This is what we have. So finally now, if we turn to our passage for today, and it won't take long, Revelation chapter 7, 9 through 12. This is what we see. We see a king sitting on the throne, and he has defeated sin and death, and he is being glorified in the heavens. And it goes like this. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. The whole world, the cosmos, is being redeemed in this moment. From all tribes and all people and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation! belongs to our God, the King, the one who reigned, is reigning, and will reign into the future. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels were all standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, and they said, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. So what does it mean for Jesus to be our Savior? In some ways, it's so simple, right? We are saved from our sins, is indeed right. Jesus has played that role of the priest. He has played that role of the king and still does. And he allows us to be saved from sin in here. And he is defeating the powers of sin and death out there. And as a church, our job, we get to participate in the battle. A battle that is not against flesh and blood and other people who are around you, but against the very powers that have ruined this earth. Let's pray together.
Father God Almighty, you made heaven and you made earth, and you created humanity and you called us good. And Lord, we took this good thing and we mixed it with what is evil. And so within us sits a contradiction. You say elsewhere that humanity is just a little bit lower than the angels, and in this you declare our goodness and and how much we can achieve. But God, we also know our limitations. We know the ways in which we fail. We know that when we say, what's wrong with the world, we're also asking, what's wrong with me? Why do I keep doing that? Why do I keep failing in this way? And God, you provide an answer. You provide a way out. You provide a solution. And the solution is your son, Jesus Christ. And God, for that, we indeed give you praise and glory and honor and strength and power because it all belongs to you. Lord, we lift you up today as the only route to salvation that this world has. And we ask, Lord, on an individual level that indeed you save us. And if there is somebody in this room or somebody who's watching in their television or on their computer screen who needs that salvation, God, now is the time. May they speak directly to you and ask for that. Because it simply takes trusting you, believing in you. That's all you ask. That we put our stake in the ground and we say, God, we trust. We believe. We believe that you indeed are our Savior and you will come rushing to meet us. Lord, we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.